A little bit later this morning, I'm going to talk to you some about uh, establishing a regular daily practice and give you some tips on that. But in addition to a daily practice, which is very, very important, uh, something else that uh, in the community where I live that uh, we do regularly uh, is to observe uposatha day. Do, do, are any of you familiar with uh, uposatha day? Uh, or perhaps you may know it by a different name. But uh, in, the, in the time of the Buddha, under the Buddha's instructions, the custom was adopted that uh, on, on each uh, quarter of the moon, which is once a week, of course, in a, in a lunar cycle, approximately once a week, that um, the, uh, well, the, uh, the bhikkhus would make themselves available to teach lay people, but lay people would join the bhikkhus and for, basically for a day and a night, they would uh, live, uh, for a day and a night each week, they, they would live uh, for that period uh, dedicated fully to practice. And so what we do now, where I live, is once one day each week we set aside and uh, people join me and we do some Dharma teaching, but the main thing we do is meditation and study. You know, on one day a week you can uh, do maybe instead of uh, sitting once a day, uh, sit three or four times uh, and, and do some uh, Dharma study. And of course, in the, in the, uh, the original tradition of Uposatha Day, uh, it was based on the lunar cycle, so it didn't fall on the same day every week. But uh, we, uh, we're doing this on Sunday, because of course in Western society, that is the traditional Sabbath day uh, that has been uh, observed by, by most people in the society. So it's, it works out and it's very convenient. And so it is something that uh, I would encourage you to consider for yourselves that you set aside one day a week that uh, you know you would uh, devote more or less entirely to your spiritual practices of meditation and study. Uh, in in uh, in many countries in Southeast Asia, the tradition has been continued. And lay people will go to a uh, monastery or the temple and they will uh, hear teachings and, and they will meditate. And I, I think this is a very valuable and, and wonderful uh, tradition and it's well worth reestablishing it or, or uh, preserving it and, and continuing it. But since this is uh, the day that uh, uh, we are accustomed to observing as uh, Posita Day. Uh, I'm going to ask you to join me in, in the simple uh, uh, things that we do. What, what I would like you to do, I'm going to recite uh, uh, homage to the Buddha and the refuges. And uh, I'll do that in Pali. Um, if there's anyone who feels comfortable re repeating the Pali refuges after me or the homage, please feel free to do so. But otherwise, allow me to do that. And then afterwards, we'll, we'll sit together in meditation and then we'll begin to have 
our, our talk, okay? So. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato Sāma-sāmbhūrāsā Bhūrāng sārāng-gācāmi Dhamāng sārāng-gācāmi Sānghāng sārāng-gācāmi Dūtiyāmpi Udang Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Damang Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Sangang Sarananga Chami Tatiampi Udang Sarananga Chami Tatiampi Damang Sarananga Chami Tatiampi Sangang Sarananga Chami This completes the going for three refuges. So please uh, join me and we'll sit. Okay. Make yourselves comfortable. We'll do a slightly longer meditation than we have been the last couple of days. So make yourself comfortable. Settle in. Take a deep breath and relax. Think about how fortunate you are to be here in this place at this time. You have the opportunity to study and practice the Dharma. Well-fed, We're very fortunate in the circumstances that we live in. And here you are, sitting in this place, your body relaxed and comfortable. And here is a little prayer, a mandala prayer, to remind us of the wonder of this world that we are a part of. Here is the great earth filled with the smell of incense, covered with a blanket of flowers, 
the great mountain, the four continents, wearing the jewel of the sun and the moon. In my mind I make of them a paradise of the Buddha, and I offer it to you all, sentient beings everywhere. By this deed, may all beings come to know the pure world, free from suffering. And now, with a sense of joy and happiness in your heart, bring your attention to the tip of your nose and begin your meditation. I won't guide you, but I'll signal you when the time is ended. What I've tried to do so far, and... Uh, I hope I've been successful to some degree, is to help you understand a little better the nature of your mind and how it works, you know. And in doing so, to unlock the secrets of how you, by a fairly simple, systematic training of your mind, you can achieve the highest meditative state in a relatively short period of time. So, uh, you know, but, and, and, and also when we first began, I, I told you that this was something that it was very attainable, not something that would take you a huge amount of time or lifetimes to accomplish. And I also said the fruits of this practice were very attainable in this lifetime for every single person in this room. They're not something that's hugely uh, out of reach or, or... But on the other hand, to be successful in this meditation practice and to realize the fruits of the practice, it does take an effort, a sustained effort, consistency and diligence are absolutely required. You know, I don't know, maybe it has happened, but I don't think that anybody has ever said, has ever become enlightened or awakened as a result of saying, I think I'll dabble in meditation in my spare time, you know, along with golf and socializing and uh, watching TV. It just—it doesn't happen that way, I don't think. <laughs> Maybe it does for somebody, but I've never heard of anybody. What seems to be more the pattern is that a person begins to develop this strong motivation and practice becomes important to them and a priority. And over time, it becomes the most important thing. And their whole life becomes uh, a Dharma practice. I've seen that happen. And I've seen that it, it succeeds. 
that I've seen that people who uh, don't start out making this a priority, that it doesn't happen with them. So you have to take these first steps. You have to take the conviction that this is something that you really want to pursue from deep within your heart and act on that and the very first steps to make it a priority in your life. The very first thing is that you have to uh, establish a, a, a regular practice. And uh, it doesn't work to say, well, I'll I'll, 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 I'll practice meditation every day whenever I get around to it. Some of you may have tried that. And what happens in these busy lives that we lead, we don't get around to it. Well, actually, for the first little while, you're really good. You're excited about it. Yeah, yeah. You get around to it. Then something comes up, and, well, missed that day, but uh, that won't happen again. But a couple of days later, it does happen. And then after a while, your practice falls apart. Uh, there's only so many hours in a day. And we're all busy. We all have a lot of uh, demands on our time and our energy. Um, and so uh, unless you give it its uh, due importance within the, within the context of everything else, all of these other things that are competing for your time and energy are going to win out. It's like you get a job. Uh, it's a job you want, you like. Well, you do what's necessary to make sure that you get there on time and that you have the energy to do the job properly and so forth. And it's the same thing. It's the same thing. So if you haven't already established a regular practice in your life, the things that you're going to need to do is you're going to need to look at the uh, routine of your daily activities, of your regular activities, and making practice a priority, you're going to have to decide where it fits in. And almost certainly, it means you're going to have to make changes, and you're, you're quite likely going to have to sacrifice something else to uh, make sure that you can do this consistently and regularly. So you, you really do, it, it, it's not something you just sort of slip in amongst everything else, because there is, uh, certainly in the beginning of practice, there's a certain resistance that develops. And when there are other things competing for your time, it's very easy to procrastinate. So you, you need to decide when you're going to meditate, where you're going to meditate, create the conditions, make the adjustments in your life. And uh, uh, now, you, Probably for most of you, the best way to do that is is, is you're going to period, pick a period in the day according to clock time and say, this is when I practice. Some of you may not be so clock-oriented, but you'll have some kind of routine. So you'll, the same thing, you'll say, within the routine of my day, this is, this is when I meditate. Uh, when you do that, just to give you some tips, for the vast majority of people, 
the best time of day for them to meditate is in the morning. Not too long after they wake up. And usually before you've, you've had breakfast or at least uh, not eaten uh, a, a large breakfast, maybe a piece of fruit and some tea or something like that. But that's, for most people, that's the time of day that is most conducive. You're very well rested. Uh, you haven't had a lot of things happen to agitate your mind. And uh, also, in terms of fitting it into your schedule, uh, finding the time for it, especially uh, if you work and you have family and things like that, you will probably find that the easiest place during the day to make a slot to meditate is by getting up a little earlier. But that may not be true for all of you. But for, for most of you, though, the, uh, the best time of day is early morning, not too long after you've woken up. And by contrast, for most people, the worst time of the day is the middle of the afternoon. That's when I had you meditating the last couple of days, huh? <laughs> well, sometimes it happens in terms of other considerations, you know, that may turn out that that's the, that's the only time that you can do it. And if it is, it's not impossible. It's, it's just that uh, physiologically we all seem to hit a low energy, a low point in our daily energy cycle uh, in the middle of the afternoon. And so that can make it a, a little more difficult, you know. But it doesn't mean that it's impossible. But it's just if you, if you are like most people, there is a, a best time and a poorest time of the day. You know. And then there's all of the other times, which have their pros and cons. Uh, some people are very good at disengaging, you know, from their day's activities when when the time to work has ended and they go home, they're very good at just leaving all that behind, you know, and, uh, and so that time's a very good time for them to meditate. Other people, though, it's not so easy and they spent the whole day accumulating a lot of uh, agitation and disturbance of the mind, you know, and, and so that's all there. Uh, it's something for you to take into consideration, but it's also, uh, you know, it's, it's as long as you have the options to, to select uh, one time or another and, and you can look at your own tendencies, you know, make, make some kind of uh, judgment based on that. But you know, it's even that if you have to meditate, if the only time that really works for you to meditate is after you get home from work in the early evening and you do have a lot of agitation in your mind, that's all right. It just means that you'll very quickly get a lot of opportunity to practice dealing with agitation. Just like if the only time that you can meditate is is uh, right after lunch, you'll get right away, you'll get a lot of opportunity to practice dealing with dullness. And both of these are a good thing. Once you've succeeded in dealing with them and, and, and mastered them uh, as, as, as problems, it'll be done with forever. And of course, the longer you practice, uh, the more the more versatile you'll be. More and more any time of day will work just as well. And more and more any kind of circumstances will work just as well. But I suggest you, you look at your day and you decide when is the best time. And then you do whatever you need to do 
to make sure that you can always do that. Let people know, I'm not available at that time. No calls, no appointments, uh, you know, I'm not available, I'm doing something else. Which would be the case with other sorts of things, you know. Uh, uh, if, if your job entailed doing something and you were not available a certain part of the day, you would quickly let everyone else know that. And it's the same thing with meditation. Let people know you're not available then. And then a suitable place. And it doesn't need to be completely silent. It doesn't need to be dark. Uh, you, know, uh, you just do the best that you can you know, to minimize the external distractions without going overboard. And then make sure that that, that place is comfortable and adequate. Uh, if there's a telephone in there, make sure you can unplug it for the time that you're going to meditate. Things like that. Uh, anything that you might, might personally be psychologically conducive to a better practice, do it. You know, uh, create a little altar, or or hang a Buddha image on the wall, burn some incense if that helps. Whatever you know. Just do everything you can and, and make this a focus. And then you start to think of this. This is your time. This time and this place. They've been set aside from the rest of the world. You know, you've recovered this for you of your life. You have this whatever it is, an hour a day or whatever. It's entirely for you. And revel in that. And take take pleasure and satisfaction in that. And then stick to that practice. So that's that's the first step is some kind of regularity. And I would suggest that you do try to set aside one day a week, like this Oposita day observance, where you dedicate yourself, or, or a greater part of that day at least, if not all of it, at least a greater part of that, to doing more practice than usual. And that, that would be very helpful as well. So this will be the first step, is when you successfully uh, are able to consistently do some practice over time, this this will be, this will tremendously facilitate your your overall success. And the other thing is that you'll find that you can uh, carry your practice into a lot of other circumstances during the day. If you're doing uh, the meditation on the sensations of the breath. There are many opportunities during the day when you can do that for a few minutes at a time or for or a short period. You know, uh, depending on your circumstances, say you, sometimes you have to wait in line at a store to check out. You might stand there for two or three minutes. Well, direct your attention to the sensations of your breath and just practice. Uh, Directing and sustaining your attention, you know, or or maybe uh, your work entails sometimes uh, waiting for a photocopying job to be done. You know, when you're standing there and the machine's chattering away, you don't have to be daydreaming. 
take a few minutes, practice, you know, observe your breath. But whatever the situation is, you'll find there are a lot of those, those times. And they make a difference. They may not, may not seem like a big thing, but they make a difference. And we talked about, uh, we talked about practicing when you went to sleep at night and when you wake up in the morning, too. Um, when, you, when you go to sleep at night, spend a little time meditating on your breath and observing the nature of dullness as you deliberately allow yourself to fall asleep. And you, when you wake up in the morning, especially if you're a person that when you wake up, you're wide awake, you might just take an extra uh, five minutes there to lay in bed and, and practice being, being mindful, being fully mindful of the sensations in your body and the sounds you hear and the process of waking up, and of course, the breath. So all of these things, in one way or another, can help to reinforce your practice and increase your level of skill. And so take advantage of them. And then, in your practice, you start to experience more introspective awareness, uh, more of that kind of awareness of just what is going on in your mind at the present time. Well, practice doing that in your life as well. You know, and of course, it's most difficult to practice that kind of introspective, mindful awareness uh, in, in certain kinds of, you know, in, in the middle of an intense discussion with somebody, you probably have trouble doing it, you know. <laughs> or if you're trying to solve some difficult, difficult problem, you know, you're not going to be able to do it then, you know. But there are a lot of other times during the day where you have, there's, there's this space in your conscious awareness to be paying attention to what's going on in your mind. Just be watching, uh, watching your mind and how it reacts, noticing the mental states that you're in, and uh, noticing the motivations behind the the impulses that arise to do this or that. Okay. And um, do that, do that more and more often. Do that, do that as much as you can. And as your skill increases through your practice, uh, there will be more and more situations in which you're able to do that. So that, to some degree, your practice can start to permeate all of your life. And so that time when you go and sit on the cushion, that's when you're able to intensify it. But it doesn't really stop when you get up. It's, you just keep on doing it to, to a greater or lesser degree depending on the circumstances you're in and uh, how much distraction it creates. But you try to sustain that focused and uh, mindful uh, state of awareness as much as possible. With the objective of gaining insight into your own nature and to the nature of reality. Uh, and not something that requires a lot of an analysis. It comes from just observing, observing with an open, receptive, fully conscious mind, the insight will come. And, and that's where it comes from. It's just through ongoing, continued observation. So, uh, 
and you'll find you'll you'll find your own opportunities to uh, to practice in different ways and different aspects, and do so. The direction to be successful, the direction you're going, is to move from the isolated context of sitting to the rest of your life, the light of practice to become your life. And just keep that in mind and always look for the opportunities that are there to make that so. Every situation that you're in provides opportunities. Even the most difficult and trying situations that you're in. Uh, it takes more skill in the more difficult situations. That's true. But regard them as opportunities, not as lost opportunities. You know, I uh, hopefully I made it really clear to you that. Uh, there's tremendous benefit in always maintaining a positive perspective within your meditation practice. Whatever comes up, it's an opportunity to deal with that. It's not a problem. There are no bad meditations, except for the ones where you give up and don't try. That's a bad meditation. <laughs> you say, oh, I'm not up to this today. You know, i only got 15 minutes left on the clock. I think I'll just daydream. No, that's a bad meditation. But nothing else is. You know, it doesn't matter how much dullness or distraction or anything else. And also, in the rest of your life, you know, it's not like, well, uh, these meetings I go to are so intense. There's no way that that's an opportunity to carry mindfulness over into my life. I just can't do it down. Not true. It's not a lost opportunity. It's an opportunity. There are, e even in those intense situations, there, uh, especially if, if you make the effort, if you try, there's those opportunities to suddenly realize how you're reacting to what's going on. And to, not only that, but see yourself and others and see others in yourself. Yes? Yeah, I, I have, have been uh, applying my meditation to the daily life for a while, but I have a, some a, a confusion that, you know, when you try to do in uh, meditation in your daily life, you find you will find like a, you lose some pressure. You, you, although you lose some some, I mean the bad feeling, and you lose some pressure too. Like a, like a when you eat something, you, you try if try to sen to to uh, feel the sensation, and and you testing when you testing, you you lose like a, the pressure. If, some some food you tested good before, but if you <laughs> apply the <laughs> meditation, you test the, well, that's just you feel it's just a, a test, you know. And when it's like if you listen some good music or something like it, but you, you know that's just a, a sound that hitting your your ear, your ear, and you you lose that pressure like. Well, I, I don't find that myself, and I'm trying to think why you would. Because uh, let's talk about eating. Eating every, you know, 
we all spend a lot of time eating, and eating is a tremendous t opportunity yeah, to yeah, practice yeah. mindful awareness. It really is. But my experience of being fully mindful of eating is that I have a much greater appreciation for things that, you know, if I'm not mindful, I, I, I totally lose them. That the, the wonderful uh, textures of the food and the aromas that I might not take the time to really notice, you know, and, and the particular sensation as your, your teeth are biting through some yeah, yeah, vegetable yeah. or something like that. And when you take the time to be fully mindful, uh, the, there are all of these different sensations that uh, are, are, if anything, rather delightful. That's my experience. But you're not finding that. I'm wondering yeah, if... Yeah, I, I find that. I find that in the first stage. Yeah. And then you go in more deeper, you feel there's less difference. I mean, the uh -huh. good test and bad test, the, the, the difference range is much... shows is much less. And then you don't feel that much pressure or that much bad testing before as before. Hmm. Yes? I have a suspicion that, that maybe, uh, like you were mentioning yesterday about um, analyzing down to the to very detailed level of what actual perception is, I think maybe you're getting a little bit into this direction of the sort of philosophical or deconstructive um, analytical aspect of, of, uh, of observing your sensations more so than Mindful, uh, mindful awareness of those sensations. If that makes sense. It's sort of, I found that too. That the tendency to slip into this, well, it's only an electrical impulse and it's only a chemical reaction and so on and so forth, and to sort of devaluate. It's merely this or it's merely that, more so than uh, attempting to be very mindful of, of what is as it is. Well, that's what I was thinking too. Is that it might be just a, a, a little bit too analytical and a little bit too intellectual. But I point out to you that one of the things to be noticing is the actual uh, pleasantness or unpleasantness of of the particular sensations and the re, the reaction of your mind to that pleasantness and unpleasantness. Now, what I do find in, in my own practice of mindfulness is, uh, you know, there does spontaneously develop a lot of equanimity in the sense that I don't find the arising of a compulsion, because something tastes good, the arising of a compulsion to, to grasp onto that pleasure and, 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 and want more, but rather the ability to just enjoy what is there. You know, so um, whereas uh, there is a kind of delight, and, and I'm not—I'm not talking about you, but uh, but there's a kind of delight we take in our own craving and our own desire. You know, that sort of—you uh, see somebody take a pint of ice cream and, and it's all gone, and and you know that they weren't really. The, the satisfaction and enjoyment that they had was not coming 
from the taste of the ice cream so much as the delighting in yeah. their own craving, you know. And that does disappear. That does, you know, as equanimity develops, but it doesn't keep you from fully experiencing the pleasure of the sensation itself, you know. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, perhaps if you just, you know, in these sorts of things, um, try paying a little more attention to the, the, the inherent pleasantness, unpleasantness of the experience itself and observe the mind's response to that. Then, uh, and, and try that, and maybe next time I see you we can talk some more. Because as I say, my experience is actually that, uh, and this may sound almost paradoxical, but the more equanimity there is towards the sensation, the greater the appreciation of the actual quality of pleasantness that is there. It's almost like the as the grasping tendency of the mind gets out of the way, it can, the, the appreciation can, can be there in a fuller sense. And the interesting thing too, and this is also relates to eating, because you know, when in, in the mixture of flavors, not all of them are necessarily uh, in, uh, pleasant just in and of themselves. You know, we, have, we season our foods with things that that, uh, that certain seasoning adds a certain bitterness, but nevertheless we find that in the combination uh, of, of the total experience, the mind reacts to, with a certain uh, enjoyment to the bitterness, even though the bitterness by itself is not pleasant, you know, and things like that. So, yeah. yeah. I would also like to share a personal experience that may have some relevance to uh, Jesse's question. Uh, I, I spent many years in uh, Chinese Buddhist circles, been to many uh, Chinese temples, and the implicit or, or explicit messages I, I had received at these places have always been that pleasurable experiences or dangers are bad because they will get you attached, mm -hmm. and lying at the root of samsara is craving, and that so you need to crush your desire. and so. There, and there, there is also this prevalent confusion about the difference between equanimity and stoicism. Mm -hmm. uh, there is this stereotypical image that many Chinese Buddhists have about how constraining your emotional responses or limiting the emotional range constitutes a kind of equanimity exercise. And when we're instructed to, quote-unquote, restrain mm -hmm. our sense factor, faculty, control our sense faculty, uh, I realized that despite my best effort, because of this, this cultural conditioning, this doctrinal conditioning that I had received, I have been subtly resisting the, the reception of the full range of the, the experience and reacting to the more pleasurable aspects of the experience with, with fear, with this taboo-like uh, mentality. And that may that may have played a role in the way, uh, I guess, some Buddhist practice. I, I think you might be right. When I reflect on my own experience, although I first started out being trained I, actually in a in a Vajrayana practice, uh, I, I 
quickly became interested in uh, uh, the Theravada and explored that. And I did receive that very from the Theravadan teachings, the things that I read and heard, very much that method that that uh, yes, pleasure is danger. Uh, uh, it, it should you know you you should uh, uh, you should avoid taking pleasure. But then I also I, and I also in the process of trying to do that uh, discovered some things about it that didn't make sense to me. And then uh, at some point or another came across uh, the very clear statement that Vedana, uh, uh, the the experience of pleasant and unpleasant, is not something that disappears with enlightenment, even the enlightenment of a Buddha. Buddha experienced both pain and pleasure, but Buddha did not experience the craving that arises in response to that. And I remember that uh, that was very helpful to me to recognize that distinction. And of course that is the key distinction between uh, stoicism and, uh, and equanimity. Uh, equanimity is not in any sense any sort of not caring or not feeling or uh, uh, not experiencing the uh, uh, inherent qualities of experience. That's not what it means. You know, it, it, it does mean uh, equanimity is is specifically the non non arising of the uh, craving, the compulsion to have or to avoid, and the grasping on to something as uh, as being responsible for the pleasure or, or pain. It is the uh, it is the there's the fullness of experience, but without the mental reactivity. So, and I, you know, uh, do do you think that perhaps you may be conditioned no, no, somewhere? No, no, the, by these the Williams uh, idea, I know, I already aware of that yeah. for a long time. So I, yeah. I didn't fall into this category. <laughs> I didn't fall into this category. I knew that for a long time. And well, probably, I think it's more close to that question uh -huh. is because. Yeah. Because my deconstruction, I, I I try to get into more detail yeah. and into the the physical things, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. like a blood testing and something, and then go so so that I'm not a, that because I afraid the pressure or something because it's not only the pressure the the bad testing also feel less mm -hmm. in the both end, yes. you know. So that's I think probably I analysis too too deep. Uh -huh. <laughs> into oh, the yes. physical things, you know. That would make sense then. Yes, well, that's, that's good. I'm yeah. glad that uh, this little discussion was helpful to you in uh, pointing that out. And uh, so then the, uh, then the answer would be to, in the process of your mindful awareness, uh -huh. be more mindful of the, of, of the uh, uh, qualities of the experience itself and of the mind's reaction to it. Okay. Good. Yeah. Yes. I have a question. Um, do you suggest to be mostly vegetarian to, to do meditation? That that which that. Suggest to be mostly vegetarian. Mostly vegetarian. You know there are uh, 
there are different points of view on that, which I think that fact in itself means that uh, some people are more affected than others by the kind of diet that they have. And here I'm making a distinction between, on the one hand, as we begin to practice the Dharma more, we may we may feel that uh, keeping the first precept against harming necessitates that we become a vegetarian so that, so that we're not consuming animals that have been uh, killed so that we can eat them. But distinction that for just a question, and it's not just vegetarianism versus uh, eating different kinds of flesh, but also some people say that that when you meditate, you shouldn't eat onions and garlic, or you shouldn't eat certain kind of spices and things like this. There's many different views on that, and and what I would say is individual people are far more affected by these kinds of things than others. And so, what you should do, uh, in in terms of concerns like that, is to uh, try it out for yourself and, and and make your own determination. You know if. Uh, and you know the the list of different. If I were to list all the different things that I've heard people say uh, over time about what you should and shouldn't eat, you know, if you want to have a good meditation, the list would be this long. <laughs> You'd probably end up eating nothing but uh, rice gruel and seaweed. I think. <laughs> maybe on, maybe that's on somebody's list. Yeah, that was on the list. That's on the <laughs> list too. Okay. No, no rice, by the way. <laughs> But you can't even have that. <laughs> can't even have that. So, uh, so at least in terms of the effect on your meditation, just you know, try it both ways and, and, and see if you dis- discern a, a, a difference. You know, because uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, very powerful uh, meditators and. Uh, uh, highly attained beings that uh, do eat meat. Vegetarianism is uh, it's not like an automatic thing, you know. Some of, some of, some of the highest uh, and most uh, uh, realized lamas that I've spent time with uh, given, the, uh, given the opportunity to have uh, roast pork versus uh, vegetarian dish, I have no hesitation in taking the roast pork. So. <laughs> Yes. So I eat lunch there once or twice a week. And everything there is good. Yes. Pretty good. Except one dish. It's called bitter melon. All <laughs> 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 melon. <laughs> but I decided that the purpose of bitter melon is to make the other food taste better. <laughs>
and so my normal practice would be to before bed sit on my mat mm-hmm. and do some kind of short meditation session mm-hmm. until I just feel drowsy and then I kind of go off to bed versus lying in my bed and focusing on my breathing and watch the dolls happen. Mm-hmm. Um, is that like, am I, is that kind of harmful? Because would that associate giving up and getting drowsy with the mat? Am I better off just going straight to bed and doing it there? Yeah, there is the risk of that. It's possibility that you will uh, establish an association in your mind of meditating with with going to sleep. But uh, it doesn't necessarily have to happen. So much depends upon the uh, conscious formulation of intention, you know, the determination that you make. That, uh, and uh, I do encourage people to meditate before they go to sleep. But if it's if it's if they have a very clear conscious awareness that this is not the same practice that they're doing when they're sitting on the cushion, it doesn't seem to create that kind of problem. But what I usually do, some people say, well, the only time of day that I can meditate is uh, is in the evening before I I go to bed, and sometimes I'm I'm tired, but that's the only time that I can do it. What I encourage them to do then is to uh, is to not do that meditation in their bedroom. Do it somewhere else. As much as possible, condition their mind that even though this meditation is happening just before bedtime, it has not. It is. It is not a time for the mind to go into dullness and to sleepiness. So where the danger comes with what you're doing is is the intention is to help yourself go to sleep. And so the possibility is you may create that kind of conditioning. So what, what to do is to make sure that you don't sit on the same cushion in the same place that you usually do when you're trying to have normal meditation. Uh, create the cues for your mind that identify this as a different context. And, and that should be enough. Uh, I will mention to you, though, that for many people who have difficulty going to sleep, it's often because they have difficulty shutting down the mind's thinking activities. And if that's the case with you, meditating on bodily sensations while you're, while you're in bed, you might find that that is very helpful. And uh, the, the longer you do that, you might, might find it, it becomes very easy. You go to bed, you put your full awareness into the sensations in your body, and you just observe those sensations. And the thinking process quiets down, and you go right to sleep. So not, not here, but yeah, just your whole body, just the, just 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 a, a gentle, uh, partly scanning different areas, and partly just expansive awareness, so that you're aware of the whole body. Uh, you, you missed out on our outdoor sleeping meditation last night. <laughs> <laughs> People find it very conducive to quick snoring. Right? Ten minutes into our session, and you're snoring or coming from different corners. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. Um, since I've been living in this mountain up there, I feel like I don't even want to sleep. Sometimes I'm just so I like being up mm-hmm. and, and always. I don't know. It's, it's, I sleep like four or five hours, and I'm, I, I feel like I'm done. I feel very 
Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm never tired like that. And it just happened when I moved into this hill from there, where I live. But you can feel this energy over there. You, I, I really, I, I, when I live in LA, eight hours were not enough. I, I, and I became, like I started starting to wake up early. So I can control my, you know, I wake up, at, I go to work at two o'clock to eight o'clock. So I can, I can sleep until 10 o'clock in the morning. Now, since I've been living in this mountain, four thirty in the morning, I'm done. Mm -hmm. I wake up and I'm like, <gasps> And, and, and I, hear, I hear people over and over saying that, that you must sleep eight hours, especially a woman, and she, she should give that much rest. But I'm, I'm fine. I don't feel like, uh, I don't feel like I need more sleep. Yeah. Why is that? Well, we, we're all different. The amount of sleep we need varies, and it does vary with circumstances. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you why you need less sleep living where you do now compared to L.A. I don't know the answer to that. but. Uh, it's 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 not the case that everybody always needs the same amount of sleep, and so if you know what you need and you don't need more than four hours sleep where you're living, wonderful. That means you'll have you have no problem at all finding a lot of time to practice and things like that. So, and uh, some people this is their experience as they uh, as as they meditate that they need less and less sleep. That was my experience uh, for a long time. Uh, now, because of certain health problems, I find I need more sleep. But uh, as a result of my meditation for for years there, I would you know I'd wake up quite early in the morning, and so I would just uh, meditate, and uh, I didn't I didn't seem to need that much sleep. So the uh, it is imp an important thing about. A successful meditation practice is you do have to get enough rest. And there have been scientific studies that show that most people in this country do not get adequate rest, which can be measured by their actual uh, physical performance of various kinds of tests that, uh, that uh, reveal fatigue and also uh, by certain changes in brain activity. It shows that most people in our society force themselves to function with less sleep than they need. So to be a successful meditator, you should, you should get the sleep that you need, however much that is, and you will most likely find that the longer you uh, practice that your need for sleep uh, gradually decreases. But I, it is, it's very important to get enough sleep. And if you're one of those people, you know, I'm talking about making changes in your life if you want to have a successful practice, finding the time to practice, etc., etc. But one of the changes that you may, may, may need to make is to make an adjustment that allows you to get more sleep if you're not getting enough sleep. Because uh, it will be much harder when you do develop a sufficient degree of concentration that dullness starts to be a problem. If you're if you're chronically not getting enough sleep, you're going to be combating that as well as the uh, as the tendency to dullness, which is a part of the practice. Yeah. Um, on that, like uh, you know, last night I just woke up a number of times. Mm -hmm. I slept okay. Yeah. So I was worried coming in here about this first meditation session and. Uh, it went very well for me. And uh, my attitude toward it was that the, the meditation itself and feeling the breath can be very restful. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean it's like taking a nap. Mm -hmm. I know you're not supposed to do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but 
you can look at it as restful. Yes. And like if I'm in bed and I'm thinking, should I go another half hour here or get up and sit on my mat? I think that attitude of looking at it as restful is a good thing, right? I agree with you, yes. I should probably. I'll take your question, and then I'm going to give you all a break. So I, you know, I see a few people have already had to get up and slip out to the washroom, and so you know, I, I can sit for a long time, and I, I know I can torture people that way, <laughs> and I don't want to do that. Han? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about analytical meditation? You mentioned about yesterday, which mm-hmm. you separate regular meditation from analytical meditation. And is the practice helpful when you're making important decisions, especially for business person, business mm-hmm. people? You can use analytical meditation in, uh, yes, in many different ways, including you know these, these sort of life decisions that you have to make. Uh, it should be separate. Now, generally, what I uh, do and what I would suggest you do, there is a procedure that you sit down and the intention is that you're going to do an analytical meditation. You might take five minutes or so of breath meditation to calm and focus your mind, just to get to get yourself into that focused and clear state. And then you let go of that. Now, the, uh, the formal practice of an analytical meditation is that you take the the uh, uh, subject that you wish to contemplate. Uh, And in your example, it may be uh, a particular, you need to make a a, uh, decision, but uh, in the more classical situation of analytical meditation, it would probably be devoted to a deeper understanding of some dharma issue. But it applies to to anything. But I'll use these two examples. Um, one would be you need to make a business decision. The other is that out of all of the different things that you've been studying and reading about, you know, the question has arisen in your mind that in the Buddha's description of dependent origination, why, why does he place uh, nama and rupa, name and form, the five aggregates, as the connecting link between consciousness and the six sense bases, and the other is is uh, so so the one is a is a business decision and the other is this uh, dharma issue. Okay, what you would do in either case is you would sit down and you would have prepared, prepared yourself uh, in in whatever way is necessary. So you sit down, and the business decision is you begin to systematically review the different information that is, is relevant to the decision you have to make. Uh, not evaluating it, but making sure that you have all the issues clear in your mind. And you might do this repeatedly. On the other hand, with the Dharma issue, there may be, uh, you may take a, a paragraph that you read uh, by an author that addresses this particular, and you may re- recollect in your mind exactly what he said. In either case, what you do is non-judgmentally, you keep reviewing this information until some aspect of it 
presents itself to you, uh, speaks to you, so to speak. The analogy that's used in this, imagine you had a, uh, a ball of uh, thread which you wish to untangle. Then you would turn it and you would examine it until you discovered an end that was coming out, that you could begin the process. Or another analogy that is used is, imagine there is this building and it contains this uh, wish-fulfilling gem which you wish, wish to have. You would proceed to circumambulate the building and investigate, discover where the way is into it. And when you found the opening, you would proceed. So you review the information until something presents itself as the opening. And then you take that like the end of the thread and you begin to analytically pursue it and, and see where it takes you. And the assumption here is that you have developed a, a degree of concentration so that your mind's not going off to a lot of other things. If your mind doesn't go off to a lot of other things and stays on track, what you'll find is very quickly some things will begin to emerge from this analytical process uh, in the form of conclusions or understandings or, or insights. I mean, this is in the ideal situation. And when that happens, and when you feel satisfied that something has emerged uh, that, uh, that has a significance to you, then the next stage is to take that and uh, review the process by which it was arrived at so that it's firmly established in your mind. And then hold that hold that conclusion that's now firmly established in your mind and, and, and the path, the analytical path leading to it is firmly established. So just hold that in your awareness and, and meditate on it and see if it if it sustains its meaning and significance. So this would be this would be a uh, uh, four-stage process of analytical meditation. That you, uh, with your, your dharma process, dharma problem, it would be the same thing. You pursue it. Certain conclusions emerge. You review the uh, process that led you to those conclusions, so that it's clear, and then you just hold those conclusions in awareness and see if basically what you're doing is you're allowing the deeper processes of your mind by, by holding it there to, uh, to see if there's any uh, conflicts or anything else that arise associated with that. Sometimes what happens in analytical meditation is you don't come to the point of clear conclusions arising in the meditation. And so you stop and you go do something else. But then you know, at some time later, those conclusions may still emerge. Once you have set uh, your mind to the task of analysis, it doesn't necessarily stop just when you get up and go do something else. So, but that is the formal process of, uh, of analytical meditation. So, and so let's take a break. Go to the washroom, stretch your legs, things like that. <laughs>